Boo Morcom was a champion pole vaulter. When he got to the 1948 Olympics, rain started falling, the track was slippery, and he blew his shot at the gold. But afterwards, he traveled the world, tracking down every competitor and challenging them to rematches, all of which he won. Which makes John Tatey wonder... Why, 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 why is this not a movie? Hello and welcome to Why Is This Not a Movie, the podcast where we look at a moment in history or a book or a story we can rip from the headlines and ask Hollywood why no one's ever put it onto the big screen. I'm Mike Vago, and joining me this week is John Tatey, pop culture writer and podcaster who founded the website Gameological Society, went on to be editor-in-chief of the AV Club, the host of that website's TV incarnation, and now hosts the podcast Pop Mom, where he talks about the pop culture of the day with his mom, which is delightful. He's also, <laughs> he's also had a long-running column over several websites, covering the NFL season not as a sport, but as a televised entertainment. Its latest incarnation, Doinkorama, is running at illogical.net. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Tell us about your grandfather and what drove him to challenge the Olympics to a rematch. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Um, my grandfather was a competitor all his life, and I knew it as a kid, him uh, trying to teach us shot put, uh, always making us run from here to there. He would, we'd go, he was a bit of a hermit. I and mean, I grew up in New Hampshire, and he was in New Hampshire in the backwoods of New Hampshire, and uh, you'd go to visit him. And he'd drive you around again through the back roads of New Hampshire. And this was before GPS or anything like it was easy to get lost, but he knew these back roads and he'd just take us somewhere where we didn't know where we were. And then we'd have to run 50 yard dashes, you know, all afternoon or, or whatever. Um, and he was an actual track and field coach for a very long time. But I learned later in life about his Olympic career. And uh, I guess it wasn't an Olympic career. He only went to one Olympics, but um, it was a pole vaulting career where he was really a star. He was known at first as one shoe boo, I believe, because he uh, had an early trademark of pole vaulting with just one shoe. He taught himself in his backyard, like with a pole and a bunch of mattresses to land on. And he was a really great pole vaulter, one of the top in the country. And my understanding from reading and researching that Olympics is that he was favored to win gold, even like he was tops. He was among the top in the world at pole vaulting. And yeah, as you mentioned in the intro and uh, as the story goes, it started raining in the middle of the competition and he just couldn't quite get the purchase with his pole that he wanted. And he ended up placing sixth, which Mike, it was a lifelong regret for him. I mean, you could. He moved on, of course, like he had a long life after after that. But you could tell it ate him up a little bit that he he didn't win the gold or at least medal. You can tell it ate him, ate him up at the time, because what he did, the way he told it is that he was too ashamed to go back to New Hampshire after that, to go back home. And so, yeah, he traveled around Europe. The way he put it was two Americans placed first and third. They got the golden bronze, right? But he didn't worry about them because he had already beaten them before in other competitions. But he decided to go to Norway, Finland, elsewhere in Europe, sort of tracking down the people that beat him in the meet and challenging them to friendly. And everybody seemed to, again, from the retelling, seemed to have fun with it. But these friendly rematches so that he could prove he could beat anyone in the world. There's uh, yeah, apparently he, when he won all the rematches, didn't he? 
He won all the rematches. Yeah. And proved that to himself, I guess. In Norway, I understand the guy that he was supposed to go up against was in jail for some petty offense, like public drunkenness or, or something like that. So Boo bailed him out so that they could have the uh, pole vault competition. Oh, that's that's how great. he was. The thing that made me think, why isn't this a movie? And I've thought this for a long time. I actually wrote a screenplay based on this story when I was in college. There's this scene in the story as it's been handed down over the years. Um, and as it was once written up, I dug this up for the podcast here. Um, uh, it was once written up by Ira Burkow, a sports writer. Um, and I have the profile of him. And the story ends with this scene where Boo is at the house of the Finn, Erki Kataja. Wow, I'm so sorry to the Kataja family for uh, mangling that name, I'm sure. But he's in Finland. He's at the house of the Finnish guy that he just beat in the pole vault meet. And the guy's grandmother calls Boo over and opens up this drawer and says, here's the silver medal. Here's the silver medal that my grandson won. Where's yours? <laughs> and of course, he didn't have one. And But the way Boo put it was, I could beat him, but I couldn't beat that. And <laughs> it says so much, you know. It's yeah, basically an Bo old Finnish lady pointing up and saying scoreboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, yeah, the way Boo put it was, yeah, I could beat him. But well, Boo, you know, you didn't beat him when it counted. And um, he knew that. And this quest to me. It embodies what a competitor it was, but it also, to me, embodies the fact that you cannot get a moment back, right? You can, you can spend your whole life, not that he did, but you could spend a long time trying to get that moment back, the Olympic moment, the, you know, the big presentation, whatever it is in your life, right? You're not going to get it back. You have to show up when the moment counts. It's a painful lesson. I think it's a lesson that we all learn in life at one time or another, but it was especially painful for him. He never stopped competing, though. He was a pole vaulter till old age. He was instrumental in getting basically this U.S. Masters track and field competitions going so that as people aged out of the sport, out of the sport's top levels, they could still compete with each other. He always wanted to compete. But that was fun sometimes. Other times it wasn't. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Oh, just the remarkable thing that I read up on his, just on his Wikipedia page was that not only did he lead every age group as he aged into that age group yeah. up until like 75 and up, but some of his heights that he pole vaulted at, at like middle age were yeah. higher than what he did when he was young because they invented fiberglass poles and he could go higher. That's right. He always had a ton of poles on top of his uh, station wagon and was always trying out some different equipment. He wasn't well, afraid to evolve that way. But going back yeah. to the beginning, like my, my dad, you know, taught me how to throw a football. I love that your grandpa took you out to throw you how to throw a shot put. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't love it at the time, but yeah, I do love it now because <laughs> like, honestly, I watched the track and field at the Olympics and I understand the mechanics of a lot of the sports because he just wanted us to understand all of it. I mean, he wanted us to be great at it. I never was. He would take me to track meets and I'd huff and puff my Nintendo ass through a 50 yard <laughs> dash or whatever. But yeah, like I'm glad he sort of steeped me in those sports and I can understand the fundamentals of them for sure. Yeah, because even the, like my, my brother was a track star in high school and, and college before he was injured a few times, but he was the like number two high jumper in the country in college and he was a long jumper. Oh, but he I used to tease him for being the non running track star. 
because he did high triple and long jump. Those were his events. And jumping only. He did jumping only. He didn't run. He didn't throw anything. He only did jumping until somebody on the hurdles team got hurt. And they were like, look, we know you know how to jump. If you can just run a little bit in between jumps. That's right. Well, I guess I can incorporate a little running into my jumping. All right. That's <laughs> compromising my Compromising my principles here. But but even going to meet some, watching him and following him, like all of the like javelin shot, but like that stuff is all still a mystery to me because there's no there's no jumping. That's all that's all we know in my family. <laughs> Was he a, like a clumsy runner? Oh no, he's he. You know, I, I'm sure he's you know he's 41 and can probably beat most people in a race now. That was just his forte. Um, it was just jump. the jumping was, it was, it was the thing that he was better at than anybody. He was like a fine runner, but he wasn't going to like, you know, win medals and everything. Whereas he has like, I think to this day, he probably has all the high school records in wow. you know, all, all the jumping events. No offense, Mike, but I never would have guessed. <laughs> well, I mean, he, you never would have guessed. I had an athlete grandfather, I assume as well, but yeah, that's crazy. I was a band kid who never exerted myself at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned in your email that he had sort of an almost not quite quality to his story too. What happened? Well, in high school, he went to nationals for high and long jump. And then he got a scholarship to Penn State. But his high school coach was the football coach who is disinterested in everything else, Hmm. including coaching track and being a elementary school teacher. So he really had no coaching or training. It was just kind of raw talent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And which is remarkable. He had a lot of raw talent. And then he, he got to college and the coaches were like, well, you don't have any technique. You haven't been coached at all. We can make you better, but you have to unlearn your bad habits. It's going to make you worse. And then you get better. And so he, freshman year in college, he got worse, you know, deliberately so mm-hmm. that he could learn how to properly, you know, proper form. And, but that was frustrating for him because he was used to winning all the time. Boy, yeah. And then just as he was on the upswing and getting better again, he hurt his ankle. And, and so then he had to take another step back. And so then he hurt, I think his knee, like the year after that. And like, he never got back up to where he was mm. as a senior in high school when he was in college. And had he had not gotten hurt, like there was, I don't know whether he would have gone to the Olympics or not, but he was, he was sort of in that conversation. Okay. The problem is the story of athletics, as much as we have all these movies about, you know, about people triumphing over adversity and, you know, somebody wins the big game or they knock out Apollo Creed in the end or whatever. So many stories of athletics are for everybody who's holding the Stanley Cup up, there's you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of people who didn't make it. And those stories are compelling too, especially, you know, your grandfather's story. We were saying, but you can't get the moment back. There are moments where you tried your best and the other guy was just a little bit better. Mm -hmm. But they're also on any other day, if it had been sunny, if it had been, you know, sort of raining 15 minutes later, like he might've gotten the gold and forces outside of his control. So I can't imagine the frustration of, I mean, I can kind of imagine the frustration of that because sometimes, you know, you, you try your best and there's just somebody out there who's better and that's all, that's part of life. But sometimes there's things that just, you had no control <laughs> over and it wasn't about like, oh, I could have trained harder or something. It was just, you just had bad luck. And especially with the Olympics, you just had bad luck that day. Yeah. Right. And it's interesting for me to hear you talk about your brother's injuries because one aspect of this Olympic story that was always downplayed it rained, right? It rained that day. But from my understanding, my grandfather also had an injured knee. Now, when he told the story or when my uncle, his son used to tell the story uh, to me a few times, the knee was never emphasized. It's in this magazine profile that was written about him that I dug up, but the bad knee was really not part of Boo's recollection of the story. And it seems like such a ready-made excuse, almost a more 
believable and sympathetic one than, oh, it started to rain when I was ready to go, which I'm not saying that's not true, right? But why it says to me something about him that he hated to show weakness, that he would not use the injury, the, you know, the fallibility of the human body, like that part of the story would be unacceptable to him. But a fluke of weather like that became the touchstone of of that moment there. Well, there's this mentality in so many sports where you're just supposed to tough it out when, you know, if you're, especially if you're jumping, like you need your knees, that's (laughs) darn right. I mean, I don't know what it feels like to come down in the pit after pole vaulting. I know it was just sawdust back then. It couldn't have been too easy on the knees. So I don't know. I have to imagine he was in some pain, like physical pain at that Olympics too. That's my guess though, because he never talked about that. Part. But it gets discounted so often. I don't know if you remember the 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 two American decathletes in like mm-hmm. maybe the late eighties, early nineties, who were like the two best decathletes in the world. They're both American. They're sort of competing with each other for the gold. They didn't really have any competition. And some maybe Reebok or somebody put a ton of money into a series of ads hyping these two guys up, building up, building up to I think Dan and Dave were their first names. Dan and Dave are going to meet in the Olympics to oh, see who oh. is. Because they kind of call the in, in the recall us now, yeah, yeah. Like in the track and field world, they call the the decathlete gold medalist the, the world's greatest athlete mm-hmm. because you're doing ten things, you're doing them all well. So these two guys were on a collision course. Who was going to be the you know? And it was a, you know it was going to be an American no matter what. Felt the flag waving and stuff. And they get to the qualifiers, and one of the guys doesn't qualify. All this hype, all this buildup, and then the rug gets pulled out from under, and the other guy gets like the bronze. But the guy who didn't qualify. It only came out years. I think I was I was researching this for like one of my Wikipedia column at AV Club. He was hurt, and nobody he didn't say anything at the time, mm. or nobody made made much of a big deal of it. But that's why he didn't qualify. One of the ten events, he you know he kind of flubbed the first try at like say the high jump, and then got into his own head and, and couldn't do it. But he was also playing hurt, and like that didn't really even get mentioned. And it makes such it makes all the difference. You know, that's kind of the interesting thing about this story for me, Mike, and you kind of got at it earlier, is like, there's stories like that. Like at the Olympics, we hear the stories that played out the way they were supposed to. Like, even if the, I picture this pole vaulting event, and like I said, there were two Americans that got the gold and bronze, right? So like, nobody was talking about boo in regard to the Olympics. Nobody cared. Like the two Americans, hooray. That's the thing to celebrate, right? The story of the, understandably so, but the story of the sixth place finisher who was supposed to finish first, you know, they don't put that one on NBC too much unless it's they're making their big comeback, right? What interests me about the story is that sometimes, yeah, you just got to deal with with the story not playing out the way you want to and write a new story for yourself. And I feel like this this journey through Europe and this in particular, this moment with the grandmother, it's that process for Boo. And I almost feel like seeing the Olympic medal that he would never have allowed him to maybe start writing a new story that wasn't, it sort of tied that story up as well as you possibly could and maybe gave him license to start something new, which he did. He went on to become a coach. Like I said, he started up the master's track and field competition was a big part of that. So he had, a, I think, a full life. I mean, he was also an artist, Mike. I would go up to his, we called it Red Top, this dilapidated old house back in the woods of George's Mills, New Hampshire. And he had what he called his sculpture garden with just, it's what we would call outsider art, but it was quite 
striking and amazing stuff. He exhibited a couple of times toward the end of his life, but there was this whole other artistic side of him. He was a big history researcher, New England history. He would dig up old bottles and he collected bottles obsessively. Like he was a really amazing guy, actually very intelligent, sharp, had some skeletons in his closet, had a family over in Germany that he uh, fathered and whispers of other stuff. Yeah. So he lived, you know, he lived an adventurous, colorful life, I think. Yeah. I feel like this movie has to have a uh, sort of animal house like title card at the end, just one after another of everything else he wanted to do. Maybe you start in the, toward the end of his life, you know, and it's this hermit, that's how you start the movie. It's this hermit up in the woods. Oh, there you go. This, sitting sitting in the weird sculpture art garden. around him, right? Yes, yeah, sitting in the sculpture garden. Exactly right. But um, I, I also want to just, with you talking about this, I want to f- just throw in a few more things that I saw on his Wikipedia page because he also started one of the first high school track teams for girls in 1954. Yeah. Before Title I, before uh, or Title, oh, yeah. Title X, oh, before yeah. women were really playing sports. And he integrated the Pan Athletic Facilities also in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And coached coached the U.S. Women's Olympic track team in 1956. Like he was really a huge figure in in track and field. You know, even after this Olympics, he embodied what is to me one of the greatest things about athletics, which is that when people are united toward a common goal, these other things, these other considerations of gender, of race, of whatever you know, social constructs we come up with, it's an environment where they can fall away. And Boo was so matter-of-factly committed to that way of looking at the world. You know, it was, he coached girls for much of his life. And those things you said are, are true. I don't think he viewed himself as like a civil rights crusader. He was like a lot of athletes, just very matter-of-fact about like, if you can play, I don't care what you believe or what color you are, all of that, right? Track in particular is, I think, the most objective sport. Mm. You know, you ran this fast. There's no yeah. interpretation. There's no interpretation. There's no team chemistry. There's no, it's just, you know, can you pull vault over this bar? Yes or no. It really comes down to that. And so, yeah, it's, it's very easy to have all other considerations fall away. Boy, you're right. Track and just, field is so elemental. Like, yeah, that, it's just, it? can you do the thing? Yep. And I think that's what he was about. Did not care about anything else. I mean, cared, but, you know, was willing to put it aside. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned his Wikipedia article, and I do want to share a little bit of trivia about that. It says, as long as it hasn't been corrected, I don't think it has, it says on that Wikipedia article about Boo um, that he was a member of Mensa International, which is which is not true. But Boo always went through life saying, oh, I got the Mensa mind, I got the Mensa mind working here. <laughs> um, and he maintained that he could be in Mensa, but did not want to pay to take the entrance test um, for Mensa. That makes sense, but somebody out there took him at his word. So, so <laughs> well, yeah, I think somebody, you know, did a profile of him in New Hampshire magazine or whatever, and it ended up in there. And now it's on Wikipedia. I don't have the heart to change it because he would love that that lie was perpetuated uh, beyond <laughs> his death. He also, you know, when I emailed the story to you, Mike, I had to put a couple things in parentheses, like possibly apocryphal, because, you know, Boo wasn't afraid of a little embroidery of his genuinely fascinating world travels. So, and I think this is kind of fun, honestly, but it can be a little hard sometimes to separate the fact from the fiction with Boo. And if we're making a movie, who cares? That's fine. 
Yeah, yeah. With a story that's this colorful, you know, print the legend. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Well, so who, who do you have in mind to direct? Okay, I had to look up this guy's name because I didn't remember, but I think my favorite sports movie of all time is Moneyball. I can't believe they made that book into a movie, and I can't believe they did it so successfully. The director of uh, that film is uh, Bennett Miller, and he also directed Capote, which I thought was a fine film. So uh, just because I love Moneyball, I'm picking Bennett Miller to direct. Yeah, that's a good choice. And to be honest, I I had some cast ideas. I didn't come up with anybody great because... There hasn't been a, a great sports movie in the last few years. And I was trying to think of like who else can do. I had trouble for the same reason, Mike. So I'm going to help you out. And I have a second option, oh, um, yeah. which is maybe this is a bit of an easy one. But Robert Redford, I feel like it's a period piece. It's a sports movie on a human level, not necessarily an epic, but I feel like he could, you know, just based on the natural, this is a type of story he could tell well, too. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Is he still working? I mean, he did um, the one where he's alone in a boat not that long ago, an old man with a gun. He's still working as an actor. Let's, uh, let's pull up IMDb. He hasn't directed a film since The Company You Keep in 2012. Yeah, um, it seems directed, like he might be out of the biz. But this is also, you know, kind of fantasy casting. Of course. Yeah. No, I'm pulling him out. I don't care. You know, oh, if we, he's dead, I'm pulling him out of the coffin to direct this. Yeah. So I have, I have had <laughs> guests do this. Like, I know this, I know this actress died 10 years Why ago, but she'd, be, but she'd be great. Uh, you know, can we go back in time and get Richard Burton? Oh, I should have gone back in time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Who did the loneliness of the long distance runner? Yeah. I was trying to think of the, the crux of this is really though, that it's not just that he, he goes to the Olympics and he misses out on this moment, but that he has the kind of stubbornness to challenge everyone to a rematch. Like that's really the crux of the story. Like what makes this guy tick that decided to chase down everybody bailing out of jail so that he could pull the ball just to prove to himself that he could do it. And yeah. And when you put it that way, I just think like he loved to compete, like I said. And for me, looking back, maybe it's a story about missing the moment. Right. But I think for him at the time in the experience, it was just like he still had this hunger to compete. It had not been slaked by this loss at the Olympics. I think when he had that moment with the grandmother showing him the silver medal, it wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm so wounded. I think it was a moving on moment. But I also think like he just wanted to win, like he just wanted to beat these guys and he would take it any way he could get it if it wasn't on the highest stage. You know, we said or I said like track and field is elemental when you started talking about how basic some of the sports were, how objective they were. I think his urge to compete was elemental. It was not about it wasn't necessarily about the fame or the glory, although he enjoyed the hell out of those things. It was most of all about the competition. You know, when I watch it and watch the whole thing, but when I would see portions of The Last Dance, which we all were watching uh, to some degree oh, yeah, or another yeah. at the beginning of the lockdown, right? Like Boo didn't really have that vindictive streak that Jordan did, but he certainly had that locked in compete at all costs streak through him that I recognized in common uh, between the athletes. I'm sure well, Boo would love it that I'm comparing him to Jordan now. Too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and the other thing is that he didn't, you know, after the Olympics, he didn't just set up the bar mm, and jump higher than anybody did in the Olympics just to prove he could do it, to prove it to himself. He tracked down those guys and beat them. Yeah, you're right. You're right. He had meets. Yeah, that's right. Because he had jumped higher before and since. Yep. Than that gold medal height. 
but it wasn't just about that. You know, like anybody who looked at his career before said, well, he's beaten those, you know, those other two Americans who got the golden and bronze. Right. That's just it. Right. Like he'd beaten those guys. He didn't need to go after them, but he hadn't beaten all these European dudes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he had to put those notches on his belt. Yeah. Kind of the more I talk about it, the more I really do want to see this movie. Um, I'm really intrigued to hear who you picked to play Boo. My pick was Benedict Cumberbatch for his intensity, for his build. He's kind of wiry like Boo was, um, like any pole vaulter is really tall. But I just feel like Cumberbatch would play this obsessive, this single-minded aspect of Boo really well. Oh yeah, I could I could see that because you you really do want somebody who is driven. I didn't don't know that I quite had that with my casting, but I cast everybody a bit younger because he was I think in his twenties when the Olympics mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. And I assumed his competitors would be, and so uh, I do like the idea of starting with him, you know, as an old man looking, fl- you know, flashing back to this, so that you can include everything else he did in his life as part of the story. But I kind of stuck with actors in their twenties, and it was tough because you want to find somebody who can convincingly play an athlete. But for a pole vaulter, you don't want like a bulked up Chris Hemsworth. Mm, right, type. right. And and for actors in their 20s, you also can't cast like Daniel Radcliffe. Like it needs to be somebody who's like tall and sort of thin and athletic, who's oh. believable as a pole vaulter. I have a guess now as to who you picked, but I want to hear. Oh, okay. What I ended up doing was I got a sort of a gang of actors who are in their 20s, who are kind of interchangeable in okay. these roles, who, but who I kind of were about the right age and at least had some of the physicality to play, to play athletes. So we can kind of mix, mix and match. I kind of had, I was going back and forth on Boo between Lucas Hedges and Joe Keery from Stranger Things. Oh, and kind of my running joke so. in the show is if I need a young actor, I just go to the Stranger Things kids. <laughs> and so now if I need like a 20 something, I just go to the Stranger Things 20 something. Ooh, Joe Keery. I just looked him up. Wow. You know, and I mostly just know him from that show, although he's done other things. But you can see him playing somebody with who's kind of obsessive and eccentric enough to... Mm-hmm. you know, track, track down these other athletes, you know, kind of looks like boo too. Like the physical resemblance would be there too, as I'm looking at pictures of him. Oh yeah. Well, okay. That's, that, that's good too. And Lucas Hedges was mostly just of the actors I had here. Like he was great in Manchester by the sea and lady bird and was about the right age, but I don't know that he's quite as convincing as a, like, I don't know, a driven athlete. Well, who Ooh, else was on your list before I, oh, before wow. I get to mine? Well, I thought you were going to say Timothy Chalamet when you started talking about young. Um, oh Yeah. But he's he lanky just seems, actors. He seems like the, you know, if it was windy on that rainy day, he'd blow away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like he, now, he would have to bulk up like, for the role. Yeah. yeah, I didn't. I just I didn't see him as an athlete. And I kind of had Tom Holland in the back of my mind because he's very athletic, but he's also um, he's also pretty short. And I kind of thought you needed somebody tall. You, I kind of picture a pole vaulter as being, you know, kind of lanky. And I even like looked at pictures of pole vaulters. And yeah, I mean. It's hard for me to remember how tall Boo was because I knew him mostly as a kid. So he was nine feet tall. Was, <laughs> that's right. He was always huge to me, although I did know him a little bit. I guess he died uh, shortly after I graduated college. Yeah, he's skinny for sure. Uh, I like Lucas Hedges, too. I'm looking through pictures of him now. That's These are good. Lucas Hedges looks even more like him. He's got sort of that mischievous smile uh, that Boo did have. Whoever you don't use, you can plug in as the, the European... And this is another thing, yeah, but the, the, right. the Olympics in the 40s wasn't quite the world competing. It was really the U.S. and Europe and maybe a couple of other mm-hmm, countries. Mm-hmm. So he, he wasn't traversing the entire globe challenging these people. It was really, in fact, it was it was just uh, Scandinavia, it looks like. Because <laughs> yeah. apart from the Americans, the yeah. 
like the the ones who made the cut for this were Sweden, Norway, Finland. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also Puerto Rico's first entry into the Olympics, and they had two competitors. Is that so? Yeah, Puerto Rico. Really? Yeah, it was, and they were they were not competing as part of the United States. Oh, and were they in the pole vault? Yeah, yeah. Wow, Mike, I, you stumped me. A little fact I did not know about this competition. I can I can pull up the uh, the pole vault page. Yeah, the qualifiers were three from the U.S., two each from Finland, and three from Sweden, two athletes from Puerto Rico, one from France. But then in the final, uh, maybe he went to Puerto Rico to challenge these guys too. The, 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 the fi- I focus on the five who finished ahead of him. I don't think were, he went to Puerto Rico. Maybe yeah. he just left that uh, off his itinerary. But um, also, he, like, why, he's not going to chase down and beat the guys who he did beat. No, that was, yeah, it was all about the guys who beat him. Uh, and yeah. my understanding was it was just Europe. And now that you mentioned, yeah, so that so it was really just if he didn't, if he didn't chase down the Americans, which I didn't realize, it was Erki Kataja from Finland, Erling Koss from Norway, and Ragnar Lundberg from Sweden. Wow, great pronunciation. Why were the Scandinavians I'm, killing the pole vault? Guessing it would just be confident. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those. There's not, I can't think of any other major roles uh, aside from the pole vaulters. Well, uh, I did have the other, I did have people for the other pole vaulters. Oh, um, oh yeah. Let me. And this is also pretty arbitrary who's who because we don't really have character for these. I didn't know the story of the grandma. I would have tried to find an actor for her because that's a very memorable cameo. Yeah, yeah, I was I for, I forgot to catch the grandma. I'm standing here trying to think of um, we'll just have Meryl Streep cameo as the grandma. Can can Dame Maggie Smith do a Norwegian accent? Because I think she <laughs> can throw the correct amount of shade. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You need someone who can deliver a little edge with that message. Totally. Um, who else did you have for the falters? Uh, well, for Ragnar Lundberg from Sweden, um, I had Asa Butterfield, who was in Hugo and Ender's Game who, you know, was in a bunch of stuff as a kid. He's down in his 20s, and he's sort of blonde enough to play a Swede. And then for Erling Kakas from Norway, I had Cody Smith-McPhee, who is Nightcrawler in the X-Men movies and was just in Power of the Dog. And uh, and he was just, like, again, like an actor in his 20s who kind of looked like he could be a track and field athlete. And for mm. Erki Kataja, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of these right, I'm just trying to be confident <laughs> about it. Um, I'm impressed. I had uh, Tom, Tom Felton, who was Draco Malfoy in The Harry Potters. Because uh, I think you kind of need an, like an intense, arrogant athlete in this group. Oh, Tom Felton is. He, yeah, I love the energy that adds. Yeah, maybe there's one guy in the movie who, even though from what I understand, everybody was really down with it when Boo came into town. Maybe there's one guy who's not having it, right? To mix the, things up a little bit. Was he the one who was bailed out of jail or was that the Norwegian? The Norwegian was bailed out of jail. Yeah. I, I love that detail because it just adds so much color. And it also yeah. differentiates. He didn't just challenge all of these. You've got the story of bailing out of jail. You've got the story of the grandmother sh- you know, sort of shaming him you know, with the silver medal. And like that grandmother was shaming him at this like big feast that they had. You know, they welcomed into him into their house and they had a big dinner and they celebrated it. You know, it w- and it was like, I don't know if we have this dynamic in society anymore, but it was just like, wow, we've got a like distinguished visitor, a fellow Olympian, like we're going to roll out the red carpet for this guy, even though he is just like banging through town looking for a game, right? Like they, yeah, they yeah. would always be treated so kindly by these global neighbors that he would show up and challenge. I like that aspect of the story too. Yeah, that's great that he, because you could see it as being kind of an intrusive thing showing up. <laughs> yeah, being like, right? no, rematch. It sounds, 
um, I think it was just a different time and a different, more modest position for athletes and athleticism in the culture. Uh, and and was, also, like, was the Olympics even televised in Finland in 1948? For the family and people in that town, this might have been, you know, you get a front row seat to the Olympics, watching the two guys compete in the backyard. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Two Olympic competitors going at it. You can't, it's a good point. You can't just watch it on the TV. Um, I mean, even if they you- were just... Even if you could, if like Simone Biles showed up in your front steps and wanted to do some flips, like, are you going to say no? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So, oh, so did you have anybody like casting wise in mind? You've shamed me because I have forgotten how old Benedict Cumberbatch has gotten. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm he doesn't look at he's my age. No, he doesn't look at it. Like, and I'm picturing like Sherlock era Benedict Cumberbatch. Well, in fairness, that's the thing I constantly do. <laughs> where I like somebody in something and then I realize, oh, oh, that was 20 years ago and I'm old now. <laughs> like, okay. I'm relieved. Yeah. I was, I felt especially shamed as you're reeling off all these young, hot uh, <laughs> actors of the moment. And I'm just furiously bringing their faces up on Google images. Well, that's all I got for the, for the casting. I mean, do you have anything else in general? I'll just mention that I have actually made a movie of this is kind of, sort of, because oh, really? In college, uh, when I started my screenwriting class, I wanted to write this story. You know, write what you know is what they hammer you with at that beginning level of writing. And I felt like I didn't really know the world and I didn't know this story too deeply. If I were writing it now, I would do the research and I would have total confidence in it. But at the time, I decided to rework it as a, a story set in the present day about a quiz bowl champion who uh, misses out on his big moment in a very similar fashion and then drags his friends on this sort of ill-fated road trip across the country to d- defeat his betters. Okay. Um, so I've- And this ties so into your love of game shows. I love game shows, right? So I turned it into a trivia thing. It seems silly now, but you know, I was, I was 20 years old. I wish I had written the actual story um, and- Maybe someday I actually will put the work in and write a proper script of it. But well, the dream for this show is somebody in Hollywood's going to listen to an episode and be like, "That should be a movie." You know, get you two get on it. So if you're listening okay. out there, Hollywood, John's all ready to write the script. Just just make the call. <laughs> yeah, always that right. green light. I'm available too. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's all I got, Mike. Thank you for letting me share the story of Boo. He did die a few years ago, and. We we really miss him. He was such a he was a pain in the ass a lot of the time, I'll say, but he was also a larger than life character in our family who I mean, he was just a one of a kind person. So even if anybody from Hollywood is not listening, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share his story on your podcast, Mike. Well, people who are that driven, you know, often can be a pain in the ass, but it sounds like he had a remarkable life from start to finish. I think and so, so thank you so much for coming to share the story. It's, it's, it's great to hear a great, you know, idea for a movie, but it's even better to hear like a real, you know, story that actually came from your life. And thanks, this man. Is, this is a great one. So uh, that's our movie. If you have any thoughts on pole vaulting, second chances or other movies that need to get made, hit us up on Twitter at why movie. You can find John on Twitter at John Tatey, listen to his podcast, pop mom, wherever you get your podcasts and read about the NFL season that just ended another writing at illogical.net. And you can read student journalism, hear college radio, and listen to other lesser podcasts on our parent website, subjectmedia.org. <laughs> Keep yourself sane, get yourself boosted. We'll be back next time on... Why, 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 why is this not a movie?